and the bottom line that I ask people to remember is don't assume that your life satisfaction is going to be one-to-one linear related to how you're doing in life. It's way more complicated than that. And don't be surprised if some of the times in life when you're at the peak of your achievement, you'll feel low. And don't worry, that's not pathological. Welcome to Zestful Aging, where I talk with fascinating, talented, and inspiring guests who reflect on the adventures and challenges of aging and who are living their lives with vibrance and purpose. I'm your host, Nicole Christina, psychotherapist, writer, and fellow Zestful Ager. I want to invite you to my brand new free webinar, Zestful Aging, Here's How You Do It. Many of my clients tell me that they're stretched too thin with too many demands upon them. They are just worn out. In my brand new webinar, I teach simple and sensible habits that will significantly improve your life now and help you age with vibrance and resilience. But it's important to start now. Don't wait until your body's distress signals go from a whisper to a scream. If you follow me at all, you know I'm not about restrictive diets or boot camps. I believe life can be challenging enough. Let's appreciate our bodies and minds for the miraculous systems they are and take the time to take care of ourselves. Self-care pays big dividends now and in the future. And being well ourselves is the only way we can help those we love. And if you sign up now, I will send you my super zestful aging checklist, which I designed so you have clear guidelines right at your fingertips. The webinar is free. You can sign up at NicoleChristina.com. And as always, I appreciate your feedback. Well, I have my Jack Russell Terrier Sparky right beside me and my coffee in my hand. So let's begin. Today we have a really great show for you. I'm going to be speaking with Jonathan Rausch, who's the author of six books and many articles on public policy, culture, and government. He's a contributing editor to The Atlantic and recipient of the 2005 National Magazine Award, which is the magazine industry's equivalent of the Pulitzer Prize. He's also the author of The Happiness Curve, Why Life Gets Better After 50, and best-selling author Steven Pinker describes The Happiness Curve this way. In this warm, wise, and witty overview, Jonathan Rausch combines evidence and experience to show his fellow adults that the best is yet to come. Welcome to the show, Jonathan. It's so good to be here. Thank you. Thank you. And I, I'm really curious what led to your interest in happiness. You have written <laughs> many, many articles on government, on culture, on on policy, and I'm just really curious how you found yourself uh, researching a book on on <laughs> happiness. People ask that a lot, and the answer is me. This book is uh, Happiness Curve. It's kind of an autobiography because I am someone who was 
a high achiever and achieved more than I ever expected, yet by midlife, age 45, I was in an emotional slump. It wasn't quite a depression, but I would wake up, especially in the mornings, I would feel like my life was disappointing. I'd feel restless. I wanted to change everything up. I felt dissatisfied and, and all of those things, but I had no reason to be. And mm -hmm. I, I knew that something was really stirring that was weird and not rational when I won the highest award a magazine journalist America in American can get. You know, it's the equivalent of the Pulitzer Prize in my business. And that finally seemed fulfilling and made me feel satisfied for about 10 days. Mm -hmm. And then all the harpy voices came back saying, why aren't you doing something worthwhile with your life? Except I was. And this made no sense. So that became alarming. I thought there's something wrong with me. Am I depressed? Then along comes a few years later, around the time I turned 50, I become aware of these new discoveries in, of all places, economics of the happiness curve, which is it's harder to be satisfied in life in the middle of life. It's not a crisis usually, but it can be a long, slow slog. That's exactly what I was experiencing. Happens in humans, something like it seems to happen in chimpanzees and orangutans. And knowing about that, knowing that what I was going through was totally normal, not fun, but normal, was such a big help to me, I had to write a book about it. Mm-hmm. And do you think that it's different for people who have had such high achievement? I, I see a lot of people who either just got awarded tenure or just finished their dissertation. Um, and you'd think that they'd be relieved and buoyant and excited. And there is the sense of, okay, um, now what? Do, how do you see it in terms of, is this relative to your level of accomplishment or is this across the board? Well, since chimps and orangutans get it, and presumably they don't have tenure decisions, to some extent, this seems to be part of our biology, to some extent. And it's a tendency. It's one of a lot of things that goes on. Can't stress that enough. Not everyone will feel this way because it depends. A lot of things affect your happiness. Unemployment, health, marriage. All of those things matter too. But here's the thing, Nicole. Can I call you Nicole? Of course. I should course. call me maybe Dr. Christine. I don't know. Um, here's the thing. High achievers can be at particular risk of noticing the happiness curve because they don't have all those other setbacks to focus on. So it's kind of perverse, right? The better you feel like you're doing, the more grateful you feel you should be and the less reason you have to feel dissatisfied. Mm -hmm. So that means if you're hit with this as I was, you have nothing to blame it on except yourself. And, and that's exactly what I did. So this is not only a problem of high achievers, but high achievement perversely m can make the effect stronger. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And were, were you talking to your peers also and saying, you know, this is this weird perverse thing. I just won this amazing award. It's something I've always aspired to. And yet 10 days after I feel kind of, you know, a malaise. Is that something that you were talking to your, your people about or oh, was it? I, uh, I wish it, I wish it had been, you know, that's yeah. what the book is about partly is about the two things people do that make this worse. And I did both of them. So did I mention it's kind of autobiographical? Mm -hmm. The first thing that people do that make it worse is they blame themselves and think, 
there's something wrong with me. I have chronic depression. I'll never mm. be grateful again. At 50, you know, we're supposed to be at the top of our game. It's the peak of, in life, of life. It's all going to be downhill as we get old and senile and rot. None of that is right. We'll come back to that. None of that is right. Oh, good. But because people think that they're alarmed, you know, here I'm age 50 and I'm feeling rotten, so it's all going to get worse. They become pessimistic as well as disappointed. So the first thing to realize, don't make the mistake of thinking you're going through something abnormal. It goes away. Most people, most of the time, it's a natural transition stage and it's going to pass. And in fact, there's a payoff and we need to talk about the payoff. There's a reward. But the second mistake people make is the one you just alluded to. I felt ashamed mm -hmm. because I am a high achiever, right? I'm supposed to be master of the universe. And I'm not supposed to be feeling dissatisfied about my life because, I mean, what do I have to complain about? Mm -hmm. That seems immoral. Mm -hmm, to mm -hmm. be complaining about my life as fortunate as I have been. So I kept it all inside. I didn't even tell my husband. And isolation also makes it worse because you walk around feeling like, oh, God, I'm the only one feeling this way. And right. there's no one I can tell. And then people start worried. I, 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 my book is full of interviews with real life people who faced all these issues. And one thing I would hear surprisingly often is I don't tell my spouse because I don't want to set off all the alarm bells about midlife crisis. You know, am I going to walk away from the marriage or leave the kids? I see. So, so you want to protect him from your angst. Yeah. So You're working so hard to do too. that. Yeah, okay. and we, we hate to acknowledge vulnerability. So mm -hmm. all of those things mean that a lot of people bottle this all up, and that makes it worse because we're not really very good at handling this on our own. You know, counseling whether psychological counseling or coaching, a non-psychotherapeutic approach is very effective at helping people realign their values and understand where their discontents are really coming from. And just having friends who can listen and who've been through it, all of those things really help. The happiness curve, midlife crisis, midlife malaise, whatever you wind up calling this, it's not a me problem. It's a we problem. It's something mm -hmm. we need to help each other with. We can't do it as a do-it-yourself project. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, uh, and as we know, social connection is one of the uh, most important behaviors in staying well and healthy. Absolutely. And one of the things that goes wrong in midlife is people who are feeling this slump deprive themselves of those connections. And that's immiserating. Mm -hmm. So what was the process? So you're, you're, you're aware of this malaise, you're feeling like, how can I be complaining and feel like I'm in a funk and not really want to get out of bed when I've won this award, I'm privileged, um, I'm looking at the news and seeing you know, the pain around me. And then, and then you, you start researching. And is this sort of a parallel process where you are sort of healing as you're researching and writing the book? The healing started first around the time I turned 50. I'm a textbook case of the happiness curve, by the way. On average in the U.S., it bottoms out in the late 40s. It's a gradual process. This is not a midlife crisis. People will feel mm -hmm. this. I felt this coming on in my late 30s, and I think it probably hit bottom mid-40s. And 
around 50, I began to notice that these annoying constant comparisons of myself with others thinking I would not achieve, I had not lived a worthwhile life, that they started to receive. Someone I interviewed, famous psychologist, calls it the fog of disappointment, and it started to lift, even though at 50, I started to experience some real setbacks. My job went away. Both of my parents died, one in a very painful fashion, stuff like that. So at first, like, remember, it's gradually in and it's gradually out. So at first, I wasn't sure. But after two or three years, I was pretty sure I was on the upswing. And meanwhile, as that happened, I started doing research for the Atlantic article that, that became the book. And that was also helpful because once you understand that these are changes in our values and in our brains, which are there for a reason, you start to figure out, well, this is a healthy thing. So both of those things happen at once and reinforced each other. So what is the process? What is this gradual process that sort of sneaks up on us? Uh, can you talk a little bit in terms of what, what you found with the research? Well, I'd love to. Where to begin? The book mm -hmm. is kind of, it's a lot of things. It's got some actual tips for people who are in a midlife slump on, on what actually can be helpful. Um, and it's got a lot of interviews with real world people, but one of my favorite aspects of the book is it's a scientific detective story. Mm. No one expected to find the happiness curve. The idea of midlife crisis comes along in 1965 and then immediately gets cultural purchase and becomes a cliche. You know, that's the mm. guy with the sports car and the inappropriately <laughs> young girlfriends who leaves his marriage. That's, right. that's the movie American Beauty. But psychologists look at that and study it and say they find there's nothing there. A big crisis is no more likely in midlife than any other time. So psychologists say, well, nothing really happening. And then starting in the late 90s, basically, and then on into the 2000s, some economists of all people are researching other things They've got these huge databases on global happiness. Happiness here means satisfaction with your life, not just your mood. It's not like, are you smiling? Are you frowning? Are you stressed? Sort of blue zone kind of? No, this happiness no. is how do you evaluate your life? It's called evaluative happiness. Do you feel mm -hmm. satisfied with your life as a whole? Which really turns out to be much more important for our overall peace of mind. Like, do I feel my life is in a good place overall, regardless of my mood right now? And they're doing all this work. And they've got all this data on happiness in 149 countries, millions of responses. So they start checking on how important different factors are. And then they subtract out the effect of health, marriage, income, employment, socioeconomic status, education. They subtract out everything, which is what they do. So after you subtract out all the things that affect happiness, there should be nothing left, right? It should be just flat. But that's not what they found. They found this U-shaped curve. Time by itself, the aging process, adult development cycle, mm -hmm. is itself having an independent influence on how happy you are. Again, it's not the only thing, but it's enough so you can definitely feel it if it's not swamped. 
Across cultures? Across cultures, yeah. It comes up in data sets and everywhere from Afghanistan to America. It's not universal in every data set and every question, but it's a hugely common and predominant pattern. Enough so that these days, there's no real dispute anymore about the what, because there's now so much data on this. And, you know, when the chimps and orangutans turned up with it hmm. in 2012, people started saying, okay, we get it. There's something pretty fundamental happening. So we're clear on the what. The why is a lot harder. You know, why would it make sense for the human development cycle as we age to have this strange first declining effect on life satisfaction and then increasing effect? Because here's the surprise, biggest surprise in my research, because it's so contrary to the stereotype of miserable, lonely, depressed old age. As we age beyond our 50s into our 60s, 70s, even 80s and beyond, the aging process helps us be more and more satisfied with life. And that doesn't change. Mm. I mean, I'm not saying you'll feel great if you have a cancer diagnosis, but the aging process actually emotionally buffers us against some of the infirmities and setbacks of old age. So the aging mm. process mm. helps us completely is this an the opposite. Yeah, so... I see. Is this sort of an evolutionary... Okay, so... Uh, function? So you've been asking the why question, which I keep trying to duck, because <laughs> <laughs> it's tough. We don't have proof of why, but here's what we mm -hmm. think is going on. It's three things all at once, so bear with me, and just stop okay. me if this is too much in the weeds. Thing number one, young people are programmed to be ambitious, and to be ambitious... Our brains are wired to make us think, if I achieve, I'm going to be super satisfied. But guess what? It's all a trick. Mm. Ambition moves the goalposts. That's the whole point. That's exactly what you referred to earlier. Someone gets tenure. Well, what's next? So after 25 years of that, by the time we're 45 and we've achieved one thing after another and we're still not feeling as, as happy, as, as fulfilled as we expect to be, we get really disappointed about where our happiness level, we get pessimistic about the future. Um, so our expectations get disappointed, but guess what? Once our expectations ratchet down in midlife and we realize that ambition's not going to be the key to happiness, that's a kind of reset. So that leads to the second thing that happens, a change in our values. As we get older, our time horizon shortens, naturally. Mm -hmm. We think, you know, I don't have 50 or 60 years to focus on s being super ambitious and, and checking off all of those social competitive boxes that I wanted to. People start, as they get on in life, narrowing and focusing more on the key relationships with other people. And the, mm -hmm. the key activities that they care most about, and they start investing more in the things that mean most, and they start caring less about social competition and more about social connection. And it turns out that's the best thing you can do for your well-being. Investing and in people mm -hmm. and in caring and connection mm -hmm. does not move the goalposts. It's the opposite. In fact, it brings the goalposts closer. So that's mm -hmm. the second thing. Our values change in this very helpful way. And then there's the third thing, which helps explain the chimps and orangutans. 
our brains actually change as, our, as we age. Surprisingly, aging makes our brains more responsive to positivity relative to negativity. Older people experience less regret in a given situation. They experience less stress. They are better able at balancing multiple and conflicting emotions. They still feel strong emotions, but the storms pass faster and they're better at balancing them. They're better at staying in the present. All of those things happen neurologically. Scientists put people in brain scanners and they can see this. Hmm. When you put these three things together, the change in values, the readjustment of expectations and the changes of our brain, that it looks like gives you the happiness curve, the U-shaped curve. And it's really consistent with what people report who are palliative care providers where when talking about regrets, you know, the number one regret is I worked too hard and I didn't spend enough time with the people I loved. Yes. And you probably see this in your own practice. Mm -hmm. I bet you don't see a lot of people in their 60s who would go back to their 20s. Right, right. It's an ambivalence. You know, they're walking and we, you know, are, I'll include myself in this, a very fine line of navigating, you know, there are losses, there are, there is grief for sure. And we can't, you know, sugarcoat that. On the other hand, there's also this freedom and, and, and sort of a serenity that is new. Um, so there's that, that, that fine line that I see my clients um, trying to navigate. Yes. You know, an interesting question is, should I, people ask me, so how do I escape a midlife slump? How can I avoid it? Well, of course, a lot of people don't experience it because human beings differ. And a lot of people will have other factors that might offset it. But a lot of people do experience it, especially high achievers. I was one of them. And what I asked them to think about is, are you sure you want to skip it? Because this is not fun, but it's a developmental stage. And it actually has this payoff because what's happening is that you're your values are realigning for this later stage of life, setting the table for unexpected contentment. You've had unexpected disappointment in your happiness level until now, maybe not in your mm -hmm. objective accomplishments, you know, but, but you weren't as fulfilled by those accomplishments as you expected. But the payoff for this is going to be as you age, years of pleasant surprises, as you find the years are getting better and better emotionally. And I tell people, you know, sometimes the only way out is through. So it's a question of managing this and not curing it. Mm -hmm. mm. And, and how do you see that your life has changed as you've um, gotten over the hump and also learned so much, I'm sure, about the research and writing this book? What do you see in your own life that looks very different? Well, of course, I'm an evangelist now, and that's where I wrote the book. I'm out to change the whole way Americans think about the aging and adult development process because we're going to have to change our whole society to to understand we have the greatest gift of any uh, in the entire history of the human species happening right now, an extra 15, eventually 20 or more years mm -hmm. of healthy life in the most 
satisfying pro-social part of life, 60s, 70s, 80s. This is a huge gift, but right now we're organized to people retire at 65 and then they're supposed to go out and munch cut in, in the field, in the pasture, and then die. So that's one thing. It's become kind of a cause for me. Um, if you're asking emotionally how things have changed, I've become, it's gradual in my case. As I say, it's slow in and slow out. But the nasty social comparisons have gone away. I've become less focused on, ambi on ambition. I'm trying, I'm making both a conscious effort and I think maybe my brain change is helping me invest more in my marriage. Um, and I'm still working. I'm not a naturally generous person, so I'm still working on generosity. Um, but I do find that it's, I think it's becoming easier to focus on things other than than ambition. And it generally, I feel better about life. Like I would, mm -hmm. the best thing I tell people, the best thing about my 40s is that they ended. 50s are so <laughs> much better and I can't wait for 60s because mm -hmm. on the basis of all the evidence, you know, unless I, I become paraplegic in a car crash. But even then, Mm -hmm. um, the emotional peak of life isn't until the 60s or 70s. So another thing that's changed is where I once dreaded growing old, um, I embrace it now. I'm curious what it's like for you being in the seat of, uh, in the company of, of the elite thinkers and, and, and watching them and watching the ambition and, you know, you're, for goodness sake, you know, you're writing in the Atlantic, you're getting these prizes, you're at Brookings, you're with some pretty accomplished people. What's that like now that you sort of know the secret? What's it like being among amazing, accomplished, interesting, fabulous people? Am I allowed to say it's pretty darn good? Yes. Because um, it is. Um, one thing that's nice in my life, it's a personal thing, but when I was young, I was kind of an ambitious jerk in ways that are a little embarrassing to me now because when something good happened to a friend of mine, someone achieved something big, I would tend to compare myself with that and feel resentful. And then I would realize that that was bad and I would try to control it. But then I would find it's hard to control because young people are very competitive. And that burden is eased a lot. It's much easier now than it was for me 20 years ago when my colleague Ben down the hall, who's having an incredible run, establishing a hugely important publication and making a real difference in the world. 20 years ago, I think it would have been harder to resist those voices saying, well, look what he's doing. I'm not doing that. Mm. What's wrong with me, man? Mm. Mm -hmm. That sourness has receded. There's still a little twinge of that sometimes because, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll always be kind of an ambitious guy. But it's, to me, it, it feels like ambition was a burden that I'm happy to have shed that particular kind of social competition. So I think if you have the good fortune to be at a place like Brookings, but even if no matter where you are in life, there are always things to be socially competitive about the neighbor's lawn, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, the kids, 
Mm-hmm. My kids are having problems in school. Look at all these other people. Plus, social media, you probably mm. hit this all the time as a therapist. Social media is carefully curated display in which you know people put forward their most beautiful, perfect lives. Mm-hmm. And that's having a lot of people sit around thinking, what's the matter with me? Mm-hmm. So lightening that burden really is helpful to life satisfaction and and feeling good about life and about people in life. It must be interesting to see some of the junior people coming through who have not learned this lesson yet. <laughs> I tell them, I did a meeting with junior staff on the happiness curve. They They were all in their 20s. I guess one was in one or two in their early 30s and said, here's what to watch out for. When you get in your late 30s, won't necessarily happen to all of you, but just be aware that achieving your goals in life does not make this go away because that's not what this is about. This is about achieving your goals and not feeling the satisfaction you expected as a result of achieving your goals, and that can happen to anybody. But forewarned is forearmed. It's If you know mm-hmm. that this is totally normal, totally healthy, not necessarily fun, but that there's nothing wrong with you. You're not likely to have a midlife crisis, you know, where you tip everything into the waste can and start over with life and hurt the people around you. Very few people respond that way. Most people just slog through it silently. Once people realize that, they're not scared of it. And that's half the battle. Mm -hmm. Mm. What surprised you the most by looking at the research? Two things. One I already mentioned, which is our emotional well-being gets better and better as we get older. Always other things equal. I always say this because people say, well, you know, I have a cancer diagnosis. I don't really feel good about that. Well, okay. Mm. That's not really the point. Um, but yes, the, the first thing is that aging is healthy emotionally and even protects you from a lot of the downsides, the physical downsides. It turns out our values change faster than our bodies, and that's a great thing. So that's surprise number one. Surprise number two, midlife crisis, midlife malaise, whatever you want to call midlife slump, is often literally about nothing. It feels like it's about something when you're in it. I was blaming my job because this is what humans do. We're really bad at attributing the causes of our own happiness and unhappiness. That's why God made therapists like you. People are not good at sorting that out on their own. They need help with that. But so what happens, the happiness curve is not about your life. In fact, it tends to be felt more if your life is going smoothly. It's about changes In your brain, it's about the adult development process. It's Mm -hmm. about changes in your time horizon. But these are things happening to you. But because we're human beings and because we don't have natural insight into the causes of our happiness and unhappiness, we get in a slump like this and we think, well, it must be about my marriage. And now and then that's when you really do get the crisis and the blow up. People misattribute their unhappiness. I see. And what's in fact aging-related unhappiness, they say, well, it must be marriage-related, and they blow up their marriage, and sometimes, 
maybe often, that turns out to be a mistake because they just take the age-related unhappiness with them. Right. In my case, thank goodness, I didn't blame my marriage. I didn't decide I had to go out and get a new husband. I blame my job, though, my career. Now, there was objectively nothing wrong with my career. I was doing great, and I knew that. But I couldn't stop this, like, parasitic wasp, just what it felt like, of buzzing around saying, my career's all wrong, I have to quit, I have to quit. And there were times when I did share enough so a couple of important people talked me out of basically walking in and quitting and just leaving mm -hmm. without a plan, which would have been a big mistake. But I was misattributing. So the big surprise here and the hardest thing to get my mind around is what was going on with me was not about my job. It wasn't about my marriage. It wasn't about my income. It wasn't about anything. It was just aging. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so many things are going on in my mind. I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, how much, and you already said that this is world, almost worldwide, but, you know, if the U.S. tends to be a little bit more intense in terms of the dissatisfaction, um, and I'm thinking about, you know, what about Sweden and Finland? Um, you know, their cultures are quite different and sort of being okay at something is fine. And I'm wondering if that there's a buffer then about aging. Yeah, well, you remember I said it was complicated and various things influence happiness. And there are also multiple things going on in the happiness curve. And people don't like to hear it's complicated, but it is. But one of the results of those complications is you see different patterns in different countries and different regions, which is interesting, but it's not necessarily what you suspect. Scandinavia is the happiest, in terms of life satisfaction, the happiest region in the world. And then they say, well, the suicide rate's high there. Well, it mm -hmm. turns out the worst thing to be is a depressed person among happy people. Oh my goodness. So. In the last, there's something called the World Happiness Survey, and in the last multiple surveys running, I think seven of the top ten happiest countries were in Scandinavia. Um, Latin America punches above its weight. South America, I mean, South America, people there tend to be significantly happier than you'd expect based on con their conditions. Eastern mm -hmm. Europe tends to be an unhappy region. Russia is especially bad in terms of the level mm -hmm. of happiness. Most of these places, you'll see the happiness curve, this pattern of decreasing life satisfaction into midlife with this long, low period in the middle followed by the increase later on. But the curve will be in different levels of happiness. So did I say this gets complicated? Is this too much? <laughs> no, Americans <laughs> are a lot happier than Eastern Europeans. We both have this curve, but the bottom of our curve is still higher than the top of their curve. In other words, wow. you'd still rather be in America. Mm -hmm. So the level of, of life satisfaction depends on stuff like, are you poor? Do you have food on the table? Do you have job security? Right. Do you have medical care? Mas Maslow's hierarchy. Yeah, so are those yeah. things don't mm -hmm. necessarily change the aging effect, but they change all the other things that go into, into happiness. I think about the word that comes into my mind is striving. And how much do you feel like you're striving? What are your expectations? 
Um, and the idea that, you know, it, it, is that another way to understand this? Is that like for Eastern Europe, my sense is that there's a striving, that there's more development, that there's more, you know, to to break out of poverty, to be different than they are. I mean, certainly there's been a lot of changes there. Um, but that word comes to mind and, and how that causes unhappiness. It's a factor. Fatalism is also a big factor in that part of the world, the sense mm-hmm. that it's really mm-hmm. hard to change things, to have a sense of agency in your life. Americans tend to feel, you know, as unhappy as we are with politics, we tend to feel that it's in our power to change things. Striving mm-hmm. cuts both ways. China has had a huge increase in wealth mm-hmm. over the past generation. Happiness there has declined. It turns out, this is what's called, happiness researchers call this the paradox of Uh, happy peasants and frustrated achievers. Once you get people's expectations up about all the stuff they're going to achieve, all the money that they're going to make, in some ways that's a good thing, right? Because you want them to be socially ambitious and have a hope horizon. That's really important. But it also turns out Mm -hmm. that they change their expectations and they're no longer going to be content being the peasant who lived the same Mm -hmm. way their great-grandparents did. And so mm-hmm. in a l- it's not good enough correct. anymore. And so in a lot of these developing country situations, you see that. You see people feeling like, well, I'm ahead of where I was, but I'm not where I expected to be. Another big factor is inequality. It turns out to be bad for life satisfaction. Because people compare upward. All happiness, I learned doing the research for this book, all happiness is relative and all happiness is local you're comparing yourself with other people you know who are similar to you in in life and if you see them moving up and you're not people just hate that so inequality since we tend to look up the ladder it's just the way we're wired we don't tend to think about all the people starving in other countries we look up the ladder but the ladder rungs are getting further apart because of growing inequality we feel like we're falling behind even if In absolute terms, we're doing better. So lots of things go into this. And the bottom line that I ask people to remember is don't assume that your life satisfaction is going to be one-to-one linear related to how you're doing in life. It's way more complicated than that. And don't be surprised if some of the times in life when you're at the peak of your achievement, you'll feel low. And don't worry. That's not pathological. Mm-hmm. That's like the take-home message. It reminds me of the research done on lottery winners, too, that, you know, people think that when you win the lottery, it's all going to be, you know, unicorns and rainbows. And in fact, it does not go well for a, you know, overwhelming majority of yes, people. Yes, that's exactly who, right. Yeah. And celebrity. Someone did a controlled experiment. As you know, the gold standard in research is a controlled experiment in Africa where they they picked a bunch of uh, villages, poor villages in Kenya at random as a treatment group. And they gave a family in this village or several families $400, which in local currency was like a year's income. 
huge amount of money. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what they found is the people who got the windfall felt good about that, but only temporarily because they quickly readjust. It becomes part of their baseline. That's what happens to lottery winners. Uh, people around them became much less happy, f outweighing the positive satisfaction of the windfall winners. And the reason was that the people around them suddenly saw this other family pull way ahead, but it hadn't happened to mm -hmm. them. So the net result was that the community became worse off. That's that's so interesting. I'm curious about, and you said you were an evangelist, and I'm curious about um, you must be eager to get this word out because so many people are suffering. Oh, yes. And so many people don't understand this. So what's that like for you, having this information? Obviously, the book is out. Obviously, you've talked about it. But is there any frustration for you that you oh, want to no. just do a public? Oh, no. No, no. It's all oh, opportunity. It's uh huh. We live in a time when reading the newspapers is as depressing as it has been probably since the late '60s. The time of the King and Bobby Kennedy assassinations and Kent State and the Vietnam War and Watergate and inflation and everything coming apart at the seams. Mm -hmm. And here is a 100% good news story to tell. Mm. And I feel like I am gifted. I'm not the only one doing this. Like AARP, who's a lot bigger than I am, is also doing it. But we are gifted with the opportunity to tell the world, hey, the human development, adult development process is more interesting than we ever knew, but it has this, and it has this wonderful payoff that we didn't even know about. And you and I, Nicole and Jonathan and the listeners of this podcast are going to be able to reap this in the form of additional years of contentment that earlier generations never had. And that it feels like an incredible privilege. It's like global warming mm. in reverse. Mm-hmm. Mm. Wow, it almost is enough to buffer some of the, uh, as you said, the daily news, because, you know, I, I'm sure people around you and my clients come in and, you know, they're feeling badly. And I, I have to ask them, you know, how have, how has the last couple of weeks affected this? And, you know, almost everyone coming in there, that's sort of the umbrella over, you know, over some of the, the grief that they're feeling. So it is so lovely to have this this piece of good news. Yes. Well, we, we certainly need it. Mm-hmm. Any last thoughts, Jonathan, before we wrap up today? Well, those who are in a slump, there's some advice in the book about how to deal with that. Mm -hmm. I try to make it specific advice. There's, you know, tons of stuff out there about midlife, but most of it's in the eat your vegetables and exercise category. And right, I'm, I'm, exactly. I'm for all of those things. They're good at any point in life. Sure. But I've alluded to some They're of the things magic. that are helpful, but I'll, yep. I'll just throw them out there without, I hope, suggesting that you not read the book or at least buy the book. One is... It's helpful since the bottom of the happiness curve is a time trap. 
you're disappointed in how happy you've been the last 10 years and you're pessimistic about how happy you'll be the rest of your life. So it's helpful to stay present and meditation is one way to do that. Um, activities that keep you in the present is another way. Um, something else that helpful is, I found helpful, I, I invented, I thought I invented this, but it turns out there's good science behind it, is to interrupt these inner voices that tell you that you're wasting your life. I did that mm -hmm. by creating a catchphrase for myself. When I, when I caught mm -hmm. myself starting to go down the road of comparing my life with someone else's life, I would interrupt no comparison before I could even get that thought loop going. Mm -hmm. And I tried to make mm -hmm. it automatic. And that's helpful because it mm -hmm. gave me some control over the inner dialogue. And it turns out there's a word for that. You know it. It's cognitive behavior therapy. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, that's compare and despair. That's that's, that's right. <laughs> and it turns out yeah. that we can get some mastery over this process. So that's helpful. Mm -hmm. Another thing mm -hmm. which we alluded to is don't get isolated. Reach out. Friends, counselors, I'm big on coaching. Coaching is a great model because it's values oriented. It doesn't assume that you're broken. It says your values are changing in midlife. It's a huge part of mm -hmm. it. So let's figure out how to make the adjustment that you're craving in a positive way. That's hugely important. That leads to another prescription. Change is often important and necessary in midlife as it is in any other time in life. But how you do it makes a difference. Step, don't leap. Midlife is a dangerous time when we tend to be inclined to mm. want to disrupt or mm -hmm. be impulsive. Those impulses are not your friend, usually. So okay. <laughs> make change, but do it yeah. logically, stepwise. Yeah. Talk to other people about it. Thoughtful, plan it. Yes. Make sure it makes sense mm -hmm. for you. Build on your strengths and your continuities. Don't throw them away. All of those things help. And then the most important thing for me is remember it gets better. Remember mm -hmm. the time. Mm -hmm. If you're at the feeling like you're in a never-ending midlife slump, Remember, you're probably at the bottom and time is going to become your friend. So this will end and it will get better and it will get surprisingly better. So mm, I love I love that message. Where can people find you um, and your book? Where I thought would you you'd like never ask, Nicole. <laughs> Did I mention I have a book out? Yes, yes, you did. Oh. Let's uh, give me, tell me where to get it. I'd love it. to because, you know, I have a book out. Yes. Well, guess what? I'm going to ask you to send me a signed copy. What do you think of that? Well, if you buy it and send it to me, I'll send it back <laughs> to you, son. <laughs> okay. Um, they can find out about me at JonathanRausch.com yeah. or better yet, okay. go to happinesscurvebook.com. Okay. dot com okay. and there's everything you need to know about the book and i've got a little blog up there i'm getting interesting cards and letters from people asking about different aspects of it and i try to respond to those so i mm -hmm. hope people will share their experience they can even take my little happiness questionnaire it takes three minutes that i used it to gather lots of data on how people are feeling about different decades different portions of their life mm -hmm. what an important 
What an important project. I am so happy to, I mean, of course, you know, I read this stuff and I know it, but it's so lovely to hear it again and hear the particulars and hear your process. Um, It really does help. Well, the more different angles and voices, the better. And I'm, I'm grateful to you for giving me the opportunity to be here and for instantiating these ideas in the real lives of the people that you treat and work with. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us on Zestful Aging. If you like the podcast, please share with some of your friends. I love to hear from my listeners. Send me an email at nicolechristina.com. And please consider becoming a patron of the show. You will get access to exclusive bonuses and you will be part of the Zestful Aging community. Keep us going strong. Go to patreon.com slash Zestful Aging. See you next time for another episode of Zestful Aging.